This is the Commercial Property Show, Australia. Show number five. If you do find any good deals, you know, you come straight to me because I'm looking for a nice industrial property in Newcastle right now. Uh, guess what, mate? In line. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Welcome to episode five. I'm your host, Andrew Bean. And in today's show, James Dawson compares the GFC to the current coronavirus climate. He shares his thoughts about who will be the hardest hit, commercial or residential. Adam Lisi from Commercial Collective does a deep dive into the Newcastle market. He lets us in on upcoming development projects and what the future of Newcastle may look like. Philip King, author of Engines of Wealth, Commercial Retail Shops, explains why he has chosen the retail sector as his preferred investment. He also shares the type of businesses to look for and a few excellent tips to add extra security to your retail investment. Chris Lang answers the question in the back of everyone's mind. Are we going to have a recession? He also outlines the four investment characteristics which need to be combined and the three preferred types of property to make your investment recession resistant. Before we get into it, if you could show your support by simply subscribing, giving the podcast a five-star rating, and if you're really enjoying it, a review. You can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Commercial Property Show. Joining me today is longtime agent and partner at Commercial Collective, Adam Lisi. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Andrew. Going well. Going well, all things considered in this market at the moment. Fantastic. Today's market review is Newcastle. So that's right up your alley. How's that market doing? Well, there's probably two answers to that. Is number one, pre four weeks ago, and then and then number two, the answer in the last four weeks, given um, the COVID-19 situation. But prior to this health issue at the moment that's running, mate, is that the market was quite stable. It always has been. I've been a veteran in the market up here and have been in the market for about a bit over 18 years now. And one of the things with Newcastle is it's always a nice, steady market. So stability's good, employment's good, industry's good. And one of the things that we've noticed over sort of the past decade is that we're definitely on the radar now from, I guess, every sector's point of view. So it, it's been great. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Newcastle, actually. I'd like to move there at some point in my life. And I see a lot of great opportunity there in commercial and residential. Certainly, mate. What we've seen with a lot of the releases of the project marketing projects in Newcastle, uh, I think one of the the more recent figures was about 20% of the buyer pool on on a 152 apartment block was out of area. So there's certainly... um, and that was, you know, that was a couple of years ago now. So it's definitely happening and more and more people are getting excited. Yeah, that's great. So what type of assets are in demand in Newcastle at the moment? Interestingly, again, just trying to assess the market given the current circumstance. But again, pre-four weeks ago, 
certainly service station, childcare, logistics, engineering has popped back in post the downturn in the coal mining sector. That's picked up again. And, and so engineering and specialist consultants is really back in the market. So what kind of cap rate are you seeing across each sector? Probably broadly at the moment, again, because in Newcastle, we cover sort of every sector. If it's not residential, then we cover it. So it's more of a broad synopsis, but it's more dollar value in this market. So anything up to sort of one and a half to two million dollars, you could expect a yield of six to seven percent. There's been some there's been some examples of some six percent, you know, five and a half, depending if it's got that mixed residential slash commercial flavour, call it shop top for the sake of the conversation. And then once you get in that range of sort of two mil to upwards of 15 mil, you've got private high net wealth and they typically demand, Andrew, a bit better return. And that could be anywhere from sort of seven to 9% broadly. Okay, wow. Once you step back into that, you know, call it the capital markets, 15 mil plus, those yields are trimming up again. There's been some really good examples over the last sort of three to five years of of the funds coming into Newcastle and taking part in the market. Typically, when you run a campaign on one of the big properties, you'll see all the usual sort of guys inquiring. They'll make two or three inquiries, and once they've sort of dipped the toe in the water in terms of offers, then they, they start to get really serious. So we're in a really good environment now from a cap market's point of view. How is the vacancy rate in the market? I know there's a reasonably high vacancy rate of office assets in the city. Where are you seeing it across all of the sectors? So interestingly, if we refer to office, because it's really the only the only measurement tool that we've got in this market, is that A grade at the moment, Andrew, my personal opinion is that that's less than 1% vacancy. It's hard-pressed to find you know, a floor plate of 500 to 1,000 square metres in the market presently. There is a lot of buildings mooted to come online over the course of the next three to five years. So there'll be some supply there. B grade, circa 10%. And so, again, the market's been pretty good for Newcastle. In the last 12 months, there's been confidence in small to medium business, which has um, resulted in backfilling some of those spaces that have otherwise sat on the market for a long time. Yeah, I know there's a big demand for assets with car parks in, in the city. That's a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, look, I guess in every major city it is. The, the light rail system's in now and people like it, some people don't like it. But I guess as a, a city that is trying to move forward, it's probably needed to occur when you've got the amount of density that's coming into the city. And the thing is, is Newcastle's built on a peninsula, so you can sort of get gridlock fairly easily in years to come when these projects come online. The car parking stations, we'd sold a couple of those oh, in the last four to five years and Certainly, um, with the light rail, the, the parking has softened, but I, I guess what, what had happened is there was a bit of disruption in the market as well with the light rail coming in and the time that that took. So water's just finding its own level again now in terms of logistics in the city. You mentioned that there's a, a been a demand for single-use type properties like service stations and things like that. What's the driving force behind that? Well, that's hard to say, mate. I think at the end of the day, what we know is the likes of service station operators, childcare users and the, and the, the likes is that usually they'll sign anywhere from a 10 to 15 year straight lease. So yep. certainly that initial lease term is what would appeal to the investors. And I guess if the investors are driving it, then the developers uh, are in there running these projects and selling them off and getting reasonable yields. What type of tenants are entering the market there? 
there's nothing that's new to Newcastle that sort of pops up. But one one thing that I think is likely to occur, given the current situation that we're in, is that, you know, health is one of the major, in fact, it's number one in terms of employment and services in the region. People think that it's coal. Coal's a fair way down the list. But what I think could occur, given the current circumstances, is that there might be um, some opportunity there or maybe for health to expand a little bit more into the region. You know, we've got the land, we've got the ability to convert buildings, whether it be hospitals or commercial. So I tend to think the health sector is something that might thrive a little bit going forward. What's the uh, big hospital there? Is it John John something? John Hunter. Yeah, John Hunter. John Hunter. Didn't that just yep. have uh, a renovation or an extension yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah, they do, mate. That That's usually ongoing up there is that... Um, but they've certainly just completed a fairly substantial project up there and HMRI are up there as well with uh, a lot of their scientific investigations and things. So it's a massive facility. It sits, sits right in the centre of town, basically. Yeah, it is. So have you noticed that any kind of tenants are leaving the market, like any industries getting pushed out or anything like that? Not at the moment, mate. We've still got a bit of land, you know, industrial land around Beresfield and Thornton. So no one's being forced out of the market for any reason because we've we've got land and there's some nice new projects that are coming online up there will come to fruition probably in the next 18 months to two years how has your business adapted to covid19 well we're a little bit fortunate in that regard our business is only 12 months old in two weeks so we are we're a very new business in newcastle whilst the operatives the partners have been around for a long time uh, I guess we took advantage of the fact of new technologies and things when we set the business up. And part of the reason why we did that is we wanted to do things a little bit differently. So we are actually all ready to go and can work remotely anyway. So there was no impact on our business directly. Uh, and you know, we've got a good young team as well, Andrew. So everyone's fairly savvy. You know, it, without question, everyone's had a tough three or four weeks as we all have just adapting to this. But you know, I must admit the back end of this week has been nice and refreshing. As I just mentioned to you before, we're looking to exchange a property this afternoon and we're still doing the odd deal here and there. There's still some leasing inquiry that are carrying through. So, you know, people are getting on with lives again this week is probably really what we're seeing. So um, we've adapted well, mate, and the staff have been good from a business point of view. We've got four partners in the business and we do our Zoom connections every day with the commercial and industrial team. And then then we have a weekly catch-up with all the staff, admin, property management. Certainly property management's been busy this week, or sorry, in the last three weeks with with uh, businesses closing and things. So that's kept us busy. But again, too, there's there's a green shoots there in terms of, you know, people have reset for now and we've, we've just got to work out what the future holds. Yeah, that's good to hear that there are still, you know, transactions and deals still happening yeah. because, you know, who knows how long this could go on for. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, it actually brings me to my next question. Have a lot of your tenants that you are managing, have they come to you and asked for rent relief? Yeah, they have. There's multiple solutions in our minds. When when this started to occur, Andrew, we sat down and said, okay, what are the important things? Because not any one tenant is the same in this market. Not any one owner is the same in the market. So by that, I mean every property is different. And mm-hmm. an owner might own an asset that's unencumbered, Therefore, they have no debt on it. Therefore, the conversation with that owner could be, is, look, you know, we're all in this together. Can you justify a, you know, a four to six month rent free period? And, and for that, the tenant might extend the lease for that initial term. So you're getting some more term certain on the back end of the lease. 
and the tenants got the ability to um to either trade or even if they've been forced to close then the the pressure's off a little bit whereas if you're having a conversation with an owner that that's retired but needs the income then you know how can we shape that conversation so from our point of view it's about looking at every one of those situations differently and understanding the tenant and the owner profile and how we can try and massage those things together but what i can say mate is that this whole situation has brought so many people together it's really refreshing from our point of view because we're having so many conversations daily is that it's nice to see people coming together for the greater good at the moment because in the commercial reality it's fairly black and white andrew as you know and that is is if tenants ask for rent reductions and things, you'd usually know the answer to those. So um, <laughs> in summary, with, with the managements and the rent reductions, we've been dealing with those on an individual basis. From your point of view as the managing agent, if there's no rent coming in, obviously you guys aren't getting paid. You're caught between a rock and a hard place with that? Yeah, I guess so. But at the end of the day, one of the things that as a company, our standpoint, Andrew, here is is that we're here to service at the moment. And service mean take calls and do what needs to be done to get through this this phase, and and with that as well become you know sacrifices from our point of view. So you know I personally believe that this is not here forever. I've I've been through some tough markets in time, and you know this is about I'll use the same kick the can down the road a little bit. We just we're in an interim period that everyone has got to come together. So whilst for a young business it's not ideal that we we're not getting management fees, but we set the business up fairly safely anyway, and we can absorb that. We're a nimble business, so we'll deal with that, and we'll go from there. From our, from a company point of view, we've kept all staff on. We've got a team of 15 here at the moment, and our aim, mate, is to keep them all right through this whole period. So, yeah, we've got strategies in place around what we're focusing on going forward and, and what we believe the market will do going forward. Yeah, great. I love that. What effects do you think COVID-19 will have on the Newcastle market in the long term? I think, well, I'll answer the question in the short term firstly, because I think what's okay. going to happen, we, we've all got buyers that ring and say, oh, you know, is there any cheap properties going? And and look, I think in terms of yields and where prices land, that's all going to be dictated now by the owner's motivations. So again, looking at individual owners and, and their predicament, if they're in one or again, is the property unencumbered? So by that, I mean that an owner might be forced to sell or his, his position is, guess what, I'm getting out of everything and cashing in. I'm going to just put up cash in the bank. So his motivation will be, well, I just want this thing sold because granted, mate, they'll, you know, if there was 10 buyers on a property three or four weeks ago, there's probably two now. So, mm. so you're going to have less buyers in the market. Therefore, it's becoming a buyer's market fairly swiftly. And, and again, Yields will be determined by the motivation of the vendors and, and whether they're under pressure to act. And, you know, from an agent's point of view, my view is, is we're going back to that post-GFC day or we should prepare ourselves to the post-GFC days whereby you carry a lot of stock. Your vendor management is really important. As you know, mate, it's hard to ring owners and say, guess what, nothing's happening this week, but just letting you know we're thinking of you. <laughs> that, that's where the market's going to go. And, you know, you're going to have to treat buyers like gold and we look after our buyers anyway. But if you didn't have your buyer pool and service them well, you know, my, my strong recommendation is, is that every call you get, you nurse them as best you can. So, mate, if you do find any good deals, you know, you come straight to me because I'm looking for a nice industrial property in Newcastle right now. Uh, right. Guess what, mate? In line. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh so being that it's a buyer's market, 
are there any selling opportunities out there? Look, the answer is yes. Last week, I sold a, an asset for $8.3 million and it was a 5.8% yield. So the point there is that they're still there and it's still happening. What, what we're trying to do is preempt in our little crystal ball is preempt what it's going to look like in the next you know, few months. And that's why we have, our, we have our house view on how that's going to look. But I still feel that, mate, there's certain sectors, let's say, for example, if an asset become available now that was a commercial building that was occupied by Centrelink or New South Wales Health, for example, well, mate, those things, uh, the, the yields will tighten even more. Mm. Um, if you were wanting to buy an investment, a pharmacy investment, for, for instance, well, that, that yield is going to remain tight. Again, just looking at the individual sectors and how they've been affected. Yep. You know, to a lesser extent, you might be looking at, if you're looking at something within hospitality, well, it's where's that going to land at the end? Do you know what I mean? And, and we don't know the answers to that. But, yeah, you've still got good, good operators around. It's just an industry that, that unfortunately was affected because of, of the masses that it creates. Newcastle projects. Is there any big infrastructure projects going in right now? I know they've been talking about a fast train for a long time, and I, I do actually believe if that ever comes to fruition, that'll be a big play for Newcastle. Yeah, look, I agree. I think I've been around in this market for a long time, and as I've said, I mean, it was the light rail that was the talk of the last 20 years, basically, and that's done now. So I guess there's something else to probably focus on, which could be the bullet train. But certainly mm. that that connectivity would just slingshot us into a, a complete new market. The other major project that's going in the city now is the uh, expansion of the Newcastle University. So okay. um, they've got one of the super sites, super sites over at Honeysuckle. And in fact, they're on site now to expand the uni in town, which is great. Yeah, that's really good. That's going to be a big one for Newcastle, I think. Yeah. And look, that again too, Andrew, that'll fuel project marketing sales from the resi point of view. That'll fuel some services, you know, ancillary services that'll sit around it. Now we've got a brand new 15,000 square metre uh, office building being built down at the interchange on behalf of Doma Group. And, you know, that's going to be fully occupied by the government. So, yeah, look at that stimulus as well. You said before that the cap rates are really indicative of the price of the assets. In 12 yep. months' time, where do you see the cap rate for across the board? I would say that, that yields, the, the standard yields that were in play might tickle out, you know, half a point to maybe a point until the uncertainty around everything settles because there's still a lot of cash out there, you know, money's cheap at the moment. So I feel that whilst things can sit dormant for the time being, they will tickle out a little bit. But again, if you're getting 6 to 7% on a cheap interest rate from the financiers, well, mate, it's still good numbers. So yeah. we won't maintain those 6% yields, I don't think, over the next sort of three months, unless, again, it's a real tidy, unique asset. But so they'll, they'll tickle out a little bit. And I think that by the end of the year, you know, again, I use the word water, the saying water will find its level. And I think that might be half a point to maybe a point. All right, mate, we'll wrap up there. If the listeners want to find out more about your services, how can they contact you? Yeah, so we're at Commercial Collective in Newcastle. We're a regional business. And, mate, phone's always on. 0421-613-160 or adam at commercialcollective.com.au. Do you cover Maitland and Port Stephens and Lake Macquarie as well, or is it just the Newcastle region? 
Yeah, no, we, we cover the region. And when I say region, anywhere from North Sydney to, and as a radius out to sort of, you know, we've sold properties in Orange, Bathurst, Armidale, Tamworth, and you sort of swing back in on an arch, sort of back into sort of Coffs Harbour. So, yeah, mate, any, anywhere within that reach. We've got a, an operative that, that runs out of Maitland at the moment because we see that as a major growth precinct. Um, mm. So, yeah, mate, we, we don't mind jumping in the car is, is one of the things that, <laughs> that, that we know we need to do all the time is to get the car and put some kilometres on the car. Fantastic, mate. Well, thank you, Adam Lisi from Commercial Collective for today's market review. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Returning today during the coronavirus pandemic is James Dawson. How's everything going on your end, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Well, great, I guess, enough for these unusual times. But, yeah, we're still... uh, still alive and still kicking so we're just going to move through these times and and uh, hopefully things will get better yeah that's right what are your thoughts about this crisis that the world is going through at the moment do you think this could turn into another gfc look i think that's a really great question and uh i'm i'm of course like everyone else i guess i'm hoping it's not going to i think that the level, particularly in Australia, I mean, we're talking about the Australian market, obviously, the level of cash that's being injected to the economy by the government now is is more than double what was injected, you know, during the GFC and even given inflation and all that, it's a, it's a substantial amount more. So I think that's one of the, the major points and also the fact that the banks have come to the party, well, not only the banks, banks, local councils, all sorts of companies have put things on on pause, you know, repayments, uh, rates, taxes, land tax as well, and also the you know the wage packet that's come about as well. So I think in Australia that that will protect us from a GFC-like event. Okay. Can you just explain to the younger listeners that weren't probably investing during that time what the GFC was and how it happened? Look, essentially... It was a bit of a strange time in Australia because it was like a, a sort of delayed reaction here. And I was just, you know, remembering back to that time when, you know, I was in Byron Bay here and it actually, the worst stuff seemed to happen about 18 months after everyone announced that there was a, a global financial crisis. So yeah. basically a bit of a meltdown that seemed to start in the US and then go around the world. But it was completely different to what's happening now. And... I know that a fair few wealthy people that I, I knew just sailed right through the GFC, had no problems. I mean, I had commercial tenants, cafes and things that just remained open, kept paying their rent. The only couple of things that I think happened to us at the time where had a lot of leases that were on 5% increases annually. And, you know, that sort of outstripped the market a little bit. So a couple of times we reduced those percentage increases. But predominantly we weren't affected that much finance was a little bit harder to get and then of course we had you know interest rates sort of going up and down you know they might have been nine percent one day and seven percent and then you know they, they were sort of all over the shop so it was a different time you know particularly now if you compare say to our super low interest rates which obviously are getting lower and probably going to stay low for a long long time in the gfc period and afterwards we had much higher rates so it was just a very very different market and I think just the level of support 
for the average person that is coming now in this crisis because of the virus is vastly different than anything that was offered in the GFC by the government. Robert Kiyosaki famously made a fortune during the GFC because he was liquid and he saw a lot of opportunity during that time. Do you think COVID-19 has the potential to present similar buying opportunities? Look, I think it does. I think one thing that I'm aware of just now in the early part of, well, let's say we're in the early part of this, I hope it's not too early in the part of this crisis, <laughs> but banks are still lending. But my broker was telling me the other day that, look, it is a slower process, you know, so they're still lending, they're still looking at deals. My, the, both different banks, Westpac and NAB that I've spoken to said, hey, James, we're still open for business. We've got money to lend. So yeah, well. if you're looking at deals, don't just sit on your hands. I think this is not a time to be a nervous Nelly in property. So if you're an owner and, and you know, it, to me, it wouldn't be a good time to have your property on the market. I probably wouldn't be selling your property unless you really had to. And I would think that people would be, for commercial properties, would be driving harder terms. But blue chip commercial properties, I know that two people I'm aware of in, in my course bought properties in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, good properties with good leases and good tenants are always going to sell. And I haven't seen the the cap rates sort of go up to at a point where the properties are cheaper, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, whether or not that's, who knows, it's a bit of a changing weekly sort of situation at the moment. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't be selling, but I think there, there perhaps will be some people who will say, oh my God, I want to get out of this property. And you might be able to do a better deal than you could have, say, two months ago with some properties. So I guess during the GSC, the banks kind of shut off the tap, didn't they? They didn't want to lend any money and you had to be very liquid during that time to buy. Did you buy anything during the GFC? Look, I, I wasn't buying. I had a nice little portfolio then and I just sort of sat through it with and, and watched. So I wasn't in, yeah. that, you know, in that sort of buying mode. So, But I'm sure, uh, I know in 1991 when there was another big downturn, I was buying in Sydney and I bought several properties in you know, Potts Point, King's Cross and bought really well you know they sort of jumped up 20 percent in you know a couple of years after that so so i sort of had my couple of little sprints <laughs> so i wasn't yeah i wasn't going to do it again in the gfc but primarily i think i can remember back then that i was you know just concerned where interest rates were going it all seemed to be going up you know yeah so i did not sort of put my hand up for too much debt right then but totally different time now when we just seem to be in this long-term, you know, low interest rate environment. So I think, to my mind, if you've got a bit of equity or, or some cash, it certainly is is a great time to be looking around now. But with some different ways of doing some deals, I think now, or some different yeah. things to consider. During the global financial crisis, and, and even now, you hear about the residential market getting smashed. You touched on it before. Like, from your perspective, did the commercial market really... It, did it really get hit as hard? Uh, look, I think, you know, once again, I mean, I have properties in Bondi and, and, you know, Potts Point and all that. And I, I think, you know, they just seem to sail right through it. Now, yeah. I probably, uh, because I didn't own properties in, you know, so let's say some C-grade areas or uh, or with tenants that perhaps were struggling, I didn't have that experience. Uh, it's not to say that, you know, it may not have happened. But, you know, like all these things, they, these things do pass or history has shown at least that you know these crises do eventually pass 
and yep. a property with the right fundamentals will, will always be a good investment if the deal is done correctly. And I know in Byron, for example, they said that, you know, properties dropped by 25% during the GFC, but the reality of that was in this marketplace was simply that people just didn't sell. Yeah, you know, so they so didn't realise the loss. They never realised the loss, and and that was probably the the same. If if that did happen for commercial owners, if they were still collecting their rent, even if the value of the property had gone down, well, they were still collecting the rent. So if they didn't need to sell, they just simply wouldn't sell. This time around, James, I know we don't have a crystal ball, but which one will be hit harder, commercial or residential? Yeah, it's a good question. Very hard to say. I think that. My overall view of residential as compared to commercial always has been I prefer commercial because of the positive cash flow and therefore being able to create the safety buffer, you know, of either, you know, putting the money in an offset account or just paying down the loan. So obviously it's not rocket science. Obviously uh, people with some residential properties, particularly say ones that are holiday left, that's just an interesting thing that's happened here. Uh, yep. No one's allowed to go on holiday. So people perhaps say have bought in Byron and other holiday areas have bought the property based on their holiday rental income. And now that's basically mm. stopped, hopefully for not too long. So, you know, those people might be in a position where they're forced to sell because their their cash flow is coming from holiday lettings. But if you had a permanent tenant in a residential and were only just line ball, you know, Interest rates are dropping. I think they've already cut some residential loans to 2%. Um, yeah. So I would hope that most investors could hang on. And my advice to any investor would be, if you can hang on, you know, don't panic, take a breath, make sure you're talking to your bank, get involved with a low interest rate and redo your numbers and just hang on to that property. But people do panic and say, oh, I'm going to get out of this because it's costing me 20 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week. Well, you know, maybe now's the time to to hang on if, if you possibly can. I think it's probably a bit early to say what's going to happen. So I think talking to other investors and listening to podcasts like this, uh, you know, really helps people. You can't just be sitting there sort of isolated and not asking anyone about things, but make sure you ask the right people, of course. You know, talk to your broker, talk to your managing agent, talk to your tenant via the managing agent to see how they're travelling. So there's probably... You know, probably in another month's time, it's going to be really interesting just to see how it's progressing. Yeah, that's right. So how do you prepare for downturns like this in your own portfolio? What buffers do you have per property? Yeah, look, this is a really great question. Now, typically, you know, I'm like a lot of investors, you know, we've got cash flow positive property. So you're either doing one or two things. You're either or one of three things, maybe, you know, three or four things even. But, you know, you're either spending the money on lifestyle or sensibly you're putting the money all or partly aside, or you're paying down debt, or you're using the money to buy other cash flow positive properties. So essentially, you know, with positive cash flow, obviously the best thing to do to prepare for any sort of downturn is to have a certain buffer. Now, a lot of people mm -hmm. used to say to me, look, it's great to have six months payments up your sleeve, right, on your loans. Yes. And so if so, if everyone left the building, you know, you've got six months up your sleeve. And, you know, that's something I've always personally had in place and in the back of my head, you know, and it's never completely accurate. You know, you might have that buffer and then you think, wow, now I'm just going to spend a bit of money on this property and do something. So I'll need to pull some money out of that and then I'll put it back in. Yeah. Um, now, that's a sensible thing to do. Now, if you've got equity in your properties, you still may be able to draw on that, even given this situation at the moment. But 
cash is king. Mm-hmm. My advice to anyone to prepare for downturn really is to be aware. One of the biggest things is, is to be aware of what your cash flow is, what your payments are, what your outgoings are, and what your and moreover what your living expenses are. Yeah, you know that's a big now, one. It is, you know, and a lot of people sort of ignore that. Now, I know people that say me and my partner need $100,000 a year to live. That's excluding all other mortgage payments and everything, and that's because they're going to spend 50 grand a year going to Europe for three months or something, you know? (laughs) You know, well, that's changed now because you won't be going to Europe for three months. So these things need to be constantly reviewed. So, But I'm always mindful of people that say, oh, yes, you know, I'm getting X amount positive cash flow from my property. And I say, well, what are your living expenses? You know, you, you've got the yeah. car you've got the car lease, you've got this, you've got that. And they go, oh, I didn't put that in. Or, you know, we go out to dinner three times a week or whatever it is. And it's all fine if you can afford it, but you need to have it in your cash flow. Some people spend a lot of money on lifestyle stuff, which is yeah, they do. fine if you can afford it. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you are planning a purchase right now, what terms should you be negotiating in your deals? Yeah, look, fantastic question. I definitely think that because um, the banks are potentially taking a longer time to finance things, I think that my first preference would be to ask for a three-month due diligence and finance clause. And who knows whether most vendors are going to wear that, but given the situation, they may do. And then secondly, and I got asked this question yesterday, actually, you know, someone looking at a building that's got it's a classic, one of those classic buildings, cafe downstairs, residential apartment above in a regional area. The cafe has shut, but was previously trading very well and been in there for quite some time. So they were wondering how they would do this deal. And I said, well, okay, first of all, ask for three months due diligence. But then secondly, as part of the deal, perhaps you ask the, the vendor for a six-month rental guarantee for the cafe and to carry you through. But I said, Before you do any of that, I would be really looking at that deal very hard in the past history of that cafe, because past history is really a good thing, you know. I mean, no one can predict the future, but I mean, if that cafe had been there for 10 years and trading pretty well and was on a reasonable rent, there's no reason why it wouldn't be doing the same after this drama finishes. But if it's only been there for a year or six months before this thing happened and, and didn't seem to be trading too well and they got behind in their rent. I mean, so, so, you know, sticking to the basics as I teach in the course is sort of like, are they paying their rent? Is the rent reasonable? Not too high, not too low. Is it in a good spot? You know, with cafes, for example, does it get sunlight? You know, is it morning trade, afternoon trade? So go through all those basics for whatever business it is. Same thing with an office even. I mean, I would be probably worried about buying an office at the moment if it was vacant because there's this transition of people working from home and maybe that will change the office market a little bit where people are slower to come back into renting offices. But I would say, just on that point of working from home, that a lot of people will not like working from home. Eventually, they'll want to go back into an office situation. So with those, you know, so sticking to the basics, asking for uh, a longer due diligence period, and really investigating the tenant's past history, looking at the, the leases, of course, and then perhaps buy it subject to a rental guarantee. You might be cheeky and want to push that rental guarantee out for 12 months. You know? Yeah. So, and if the person is keen to sell, most people would see the logic of that. You know, if I was selling mm. a building and someone said, hey, look, I want a rental guarantee because the cafe is not in there, I could definitely see as a business person, I could see the logic of that 
that request. So, you know, I would probably entertain it. Yeah, that's right. There's some really good tips right there. Now, James, the listeners are probably stuck at home and maybe they have a bit more time on their hands and it's probably a good time to start learning about investing. I mean, I personally recommend your course as one of the best ways to learn about investing in commercial property. Can you give the listeners a rundown of how the course works and what's involved? Absolutely. So I started the course uh, about six or seven years ago, Andrew, and essentially I, I wrote it and, well, when I say wrote it, it's not actually a book. It's an online course, you know, with manuals and all sorts of digital learning aids, videos, etc. But essentially the whole thing was based around the premise that if I was going to teach my, you know, 16-year-old nephew how to buy a commercial property, it goes from right from the basic steps right to the more advanced after-purchase enhancements of a, of a property. So it uh, covers absolutely everything from, you know, learning about your own finances, what sort of properties to look at, how to find, how to negotiate a deal, what to look out for, and essentially just puts it in a step-by-step format. And also, not only that, we have a private Facebook group, which is super supportive, it and, is. And uh, yeah, and I think, you know, even even in this unusual time, you know, the Facebook group's been, you know, very busy and I'm always in, in that group and other people are always sharing, you know, ideas and tips and, and knowledge. So it's fantastic. We've got, we've got lawyers, town planners, architects, finance people all in that group. And also we do monthly uh, property searches that we handpick, which is sort of designed to help people have their eyes open to the various types of properties in the various locations that that exist. So uh, it's not to say they have to buy every property that that are on those searches, but it just really helps people get started. And and I look, I really promote buying property that's cash flow positive from day one. Um, yeah. So that's super important, and that's been borne out by these difficult times. It's the way I teach it. I think is basic. It's a bit like the with the Warren Buffett method of you know it doesn't have to be too hard. It's a bit like let's get down to the basics and keep it simple because. It, it is simple if you follow the right direction with these things, but often with property uh, investment courses, I think sometimes they can get too involved too early and people sort of miss out on the basics and, and then, you know, they can they can trip up later on. So I sort of wanted to avoid that with my course and I, I think I've done that pretty well. Yeah, it's an amazing source of information there. I mean, I've been in the course I joined over a year ago And I'm still finding new things that I haven't seen, you know, bits of information, spreadsheets, feasibility, templates. Like, it's quite amazing. You must, like, it must have taken you hours and hours and hours of work. It did. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, because I've been sort of investing for 40 40 odd years now and, you know, classic and then sort of, you know, prior to the computer days and then of course you get we all get computerized and you suddenly realize how much stuff you've got you know that i had and i thought wow i'm just going to put all this in one place and then of course because the group has grown you know i think we've got you know 1300 people in the course everyone then has their own ideas and spreadsheets and things like that which they share it seems to be quite a sharing group so i think that's been you know, a really uh, good thing for me. I never realised it would go like that. I thought, wow, this is this is really great that people are sharing so much knowledge. And there's people in there that have got portfolios worth sixty million dollars. You know, and yeah. Then there's and then there's people in there that have got two properties worth you know four hundred and fifty grand each. You know, and they're all mm. talking you know amongst ourselves, which is great. And I think 
I've always come from the position of creating win-win situations. So it's it's never really about trying to screw a tenant and get the last dollar out of someone. It's always about let's let's have a lasting relationship with the tenant and with the business. And I think that particularly in this particular time when when this you know unbelievable things happen around the world, that's when it pays off. That's when it pays off being fair. Hopefully, yeah. You know? So, um, you know, so I'm sort of quite, you know, happy that I've always been like that. I mean, it's not to say you don't, you know, have some issues with tenants and business. Business is business. But I mean, if you can remain fair, I think that's obviously a better way to go. And I've certainly just with my dealings in the last couple of weeks, I'm pleased that we've had that sort of better relationship, I guess. The Trello board that you have, you put properties on there every month that you've found and yep. you also put little tips or things that you found out about the property underneath each property. And there's by you put it on there by state. And I think that's just really, really good for someone who maybe doesn't have time to go out and keep looking on real commercial. And then they can just see what you're looking at. And then it just gives them an idea of, oh, James is looking at this. It's probably a good deal. Maybe I should make further investigations into this one. That's right, because I don't sell property, so I don't get any commissions or anything. I have no involvement with what happens after I put them on the Trello board. And essentially, too, it's a bit like I might find a property that's in a regional area that, you know, you perhaps have never even heard of. Uh, Mm. It might be a property in Dubbo or something like that or Orange. And and what I find is that people say, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll go and check that property out. Obviously, most people do it online first. And then and then they'll find other properties in that area. So it sort of opened the, their eyes, A, to perhaps a different type of property, but B, to an area that they may not have looked at. And then, um, you know, if they follow the tips in the course of how to investigate things, that they, they may actually find a better deal or a, better, a deal that suits them better or a different price range. And because when you start looking on real commercial, I mean, you sort of can't see the forest for the trees. It's quite difficult to sort of hone down on some areas. So I think that's where that monthly search works really well. And, you know, it just helps people get a bit of a foothold into, you know, various different marketplaces, price ranges and property types. Fantastic. All right, mate. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. Great. Thanks, Andrew. And if anyone wants any further information, just go to jamesdawsonproperty.com.au and they can check things out from there. Beautiful. My guest today has been James Dawson. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Andrew. At Developer Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it. We might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410694. 633. Now back to the show. Today's guest has over 30 years of investing experience and is the author of Engines of Wealth. Philip King, how are you, mate? Very good, Andrew. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Mate, would you like to give the listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, Andrew, I was the uh, national sales manager of IBM Australia. I worked in the computing industry for 33 years. And during that time, I had a passion for property investing. I began my investment career with investing in residential property 
and so became very experienced in residential property. Um, and I collected a portfolio of six negatively geared residential properties in Sydney before I was stopped by the bank as the culmination of all of those negative returns meant that I became too much of an exposure for the bank. Um, that led me to change my investment strategy to commercial property, which was positively geared. So eventually I ended up offloading my negatively geared residential properties and building a portfolio of positively geared commercial properties. Over the 33 years whilst I was in IBM, I continued to buy uh, commercial properties. And each time I would go to the bank, they were more than happy to continue lending me money as my cash flow was becoming more and more positive and building. So that's really a little bit about the background uh, in my investing history and experience. And I, I definitely cover that in the book, Engines of Wealth, Commercial Retail Shops. Yeah, that's great. Phil, the retail sector has been dragged through the mud lately, and it's been under fire for quite some time, probably due to the increased activity of online. What's your take on the retail market right now in this current climate? Okay, I definitely think there's two questions in that, Andrew. The first question is, will the internet and online shopping decimate the retail sector and bricks and mortar retail stores? And let me answer that first. I haven't found that to be the case over the past, you know, three or four years. In actual fact, many of my tenants, their businesses have been growing. And even those tenants that I have that, that embrace online sales, uh, that is still only making up 10 to 15% of their business. So I still think I put it down to the fact that people enjoy going out of their homes and getting out and about and actually still enjoy physically going and looking and touching and feeling the products before they make a purchase. Um, the second part of that question, uh, Andrew, is obviously with the coronavirus and the impacts uh, the government has, has uh, I guess, placed on retail with the closures of many businesses at this time. Uh, well, yes, obviously that has a devastating effect. Um, but back to that online question, I think everybody already, you know, that's been self-isolating at home, I know certainly in, in my household, is very eager to get to the other side, as, as Scott Morrison calls it, and get out of the house and go shopping and attend restaurants and have a nice meal out chatting with friends. So I think there will still be, uh, you know, a strong desire for retail shops to give people an outlet. Um, and I think we've seen this with what uh, the Westfields, have been embracing where, you know, when you go to a Westfield Centre, they're becoming more of an entertainment destination with cinemas and bowling alleys and, you know, a whole lot of restaurants, etc. now being incorporated into those uh, shopping centres. So, you know, I think there's a, a place there, a strong place there for retail uh, as an entertainment or, or an outlet for people to, to get out of the house. Okay, so it definitely comes down to the, the type of retail, I guess, that you're choosing. So can you just give the listeners an idea of what different types of retail there are? Sure. Look, so, and I, and I guess this certainly has changed given the current situation that we're in. And look, I, you know, I can talk about the attributes of a great retail store. If I start there, when I look at the great attributes of a retail store, 
it's the, it's it mimics the residential property. So it's location, location, location. You know, we're yeah. looking for a retail shop that's ha that has a busy dynamic. You know, I love to get onto Google Earth. Uh, I zoom in on the property, and what I like to see is that it's sitting in the middle of what I call an ant's nest. Like there's just a dense population of residential properties surrounding that shop or that location. I like to buy shops that are that have an experienced operator with a long trading history. Um, I ask people, you know, do you go to the same dentist uh, or do you use the same hairdresser? And many people say, yes, I do. So if you're buying a hairdressing salon, which has been in business for 10 years, odds are they're going to have a very, very uh, well-developed clientele uh, and, and, a, and a loyal customer base. So you know that they'll be there safely trading for the next 10 years. Um, I, like, I prefer shops that have a modern fit-out and I lean towards tenants where the fit-out is expensive. So when we look at dental clinics or radiology centres, um, you know, it can cost upwards of half a million dollars to fit out some of those dental clinics. So where you have a tenant that's invested heavily in the shop, then that's also something that's going to keep the landlord safe that the tenant won't go anywhere in a hurry. I like proprietary neighbourhood shopping centres where the council has zoned a particular area of land, B2, neighbourhood centre, and that is the little neighbourhood precinct shopping centre for that community. Um, and so it's unlike you've got a proprietary hold and it's unlikely that the government is going to, or the council is going to allow you to knock houses down and rezone areas B2 for neighbourhood centres. And, you know, finally, I like, you know, there's a, there's a list of tenants that, that are, you know, for my favourite top 10 list. And, and I talk about each of these tenants in detail in my book, Engines of Wealth. Now, let's just talk about this list, Andrew, as it is reflected in Engines of Wealth, because bear in mind, this is prior to the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So my top, my top businesses there, Andrew, my most of all favourite is hair, hairdressing salons. Everyone needs to get their hair cut, and they're very popular. Bottle shops is probably my second favourite. You know, whether you're celebrating an achievement at work, that, that a promotion, you go and you know, buy a bottle of wine on the way home to celebrate, and if you've been retrenched, you typically go and buy a bottle of wine to commiserate. So bottle shops do well in, in happiness or sadness. And even in this coronavirus, the bottle shops have been fairly busy. Uh, cafes forms, you know, on my top of my list, restaurants, Thai, uh, Chinese, Italian, seafood restaurants are typically well supported by the Australian public. And many people will order takeaway at least once a week. I'll add pizza uh, shops to that as well. Accountants, where you've got a you know you've got a mandatory requirement to submit a tax return each year. Um, they've got basically an un, unendless supply of clients that have to use their services. And again, accounting clients typically are very loyal. I personally have been using the same accountant for 30 years. So if they're well established, they'll have a well established clientele and be a safe investment. Law firms, again, um, typically I find them to be very solid tenants, um, especially law firms that, you know, do conveyancing, family law, etc., cetera, uh, have solid businesses. And then my other sort of favourite sector is medical. So pharmacies, doctor, pathology, physio, optometrist, dentist, uh, massage are all part of my uh, 
most favoured lists. And, you know, cap rounding that off would be bakeries and supermarkets. So that, Andrew, was what I liked, you know, prior to these shutdowns and the, you know, emergence of coronavirus into our economy. Um, obviously, now we, we need to sort of look towards those businesses that have an, an in, inherent resistance to the, to the impacts of the, virus, of the coronavirus shutdowns. And where I would have that would be bottle shops, law firms, accountants, any of those medical ones that I mentioned, pathology, chiro, pharma, you know, chemists, et cetera, all classified emergency services, business types, radiology centres, um, Queensland health departments. I'd also then throw in government-backed businesses, and these are like the Department of Transport, um, Interrelate, Headspace, um, NDIS, the Busy Group, Centrelink, Service New South Wales, all of these businesses which are funded and form sort of like semi or government agencies can still be excellent investments in the current economic climate. It seems like your top 10 list is all service or destination type retail. And what's actually come out of the coronavirus now is an essential services type retail, which is actually quite quite good, I think. Would you ever entertain anything like a clothing shop or something like that could be sold online? No, look, I, I definitely think uh, my experience with, with those sort of specialty businesses hasn't been fantastic. Like there's some different business types that I do think are weak. Uh, you know, like if I see a video store, uh, I don't believe they have any place in today's society. Yeah. And most of them are already closed. Um, news agents, you know, I, you don't really need to go into a news agent and buy a paper anymore. So I think they may have a limited future given the proliferance of, of iPhones and, and reading and updating the news, you know, just on, on your Apple iPhones um, or, or handheld devices. Uh, TABs, again, gone is the need to walk into a TAB office and place a bet. You can do that on, on your, your phone now as well. And I've noticed TABs closing a lot of their stores mm. around the country. Homewares, specialty stores, dress shops, I think they're finicky at best. Some of them, you know, can go well, very, very dependent on the operator and uh, just just not, I guess, as solid or reliable as, as some of those other business types that, that we've spoke about on our top list. One of the ones that really baffles me every time I see it is a travel agent. I don't know why anyone would still go to a travel agent. Well, Flight Centre have just closed down, I think, uh, 140-odd offices, I think, some of the news reports. So, and it's fair to say in the coronavirus, the whole tourism industry has, has suffered a terrible shakeup um, as a result of this. Uh, I think people are going to travel a lot more within Australia now than, than overseas holidays. So businesses catering for domestic travel may be, may be an option worth considering as an investment. But certainly yeah. it's, it's more risky than some of the other virus-resistant type investments that we've just mentioned. So when you are considering a retail asset, what type of due diligence should you be doing on the actual tenant of the retail shop? It's a good question. And I think it comes down to also when I, I talk to a lot of clients, you know, about the type of investment, why why retail, you know, because I think we've all grown up in a, in a residential property. We all have this intrinsic comfort in investing in residential property. 
Um, and even though we walk past commercial shops every day of our life, it's very the very few people that stop and think, wow, why don't I buy a, a commercial property? Most, you know, of the mums and dad investors in Australia are investing in residential property. And so I like to do a, a comparison of residential versus, you know, the, the attributes of residential versus commercial. And, you know, in residential, you've got tenants that typically sign short lease terms, six to 12 months. In commercial, you know, because of that fit-out expense, the tenants, it's their business, uh, the leases tend to be a lot longer. So you can sign three, five, ten year. I've even signed a 15-year lease uh, over one of my supermarkets. Residential tenants tend to be more transient. They're typically saving for a deposit for a unit. And when they've got it, they're, they're not going to renew their lease and they're going to move out and buy. Or they're renting because of, uh, you know, various personal reasons or to be close to their work. Uh, but typically, tenants in residential are more transient compared to commercial tenants, which it's their job, it's their livelihood. They've invested, you know, in many cases, up to $100,000, $200,000 on the fit out. Um, so they want to sign long leases to protect that investment. Um, maintenance cost of residential properties is a lot higher. Um, you know, you've got tenants that go in there and they, they, you've got wear and tear happening on the carpets. You've got chip rock walls that can be dinged. You've got ovens and grillers that, that don't get cleaned and, and need replacing. Um, you know, the lawns, the gardens, if there's a pool, you know, it's, it's problematic. And you compare that to a commercial asset, a commercial shop where realistically you have three concrete besser brick walls, a concrete floor and a glass shop front. The tenant has to ensure the glass shop front as part of their lease. So the only, there's only really two things that you need to maintain, and that is the air conditioner, which they last sort of seven to 10 years and they cost for a small 80 or 100 square meter shop around about $5,000, $6,000 for 10 years. And then the only other item is the hot water service, which again, they last typically 10 years and they only cost $1,000. So the maintenance costs are very, very low and far um, outweigh maintaining a residential property. LVRs these days, banks are happy to lend. ANZ Bank lends eight, up to 80% on a commercial property. LVRs on residential are 80%. I know you can go to 90%, but the banks will charge you mortgage insurance. So there's no big difference there. One of the other massive differences is the residential property. Typically, you cannot scale your portfolio. So like what happened to me, if you're buying negatively geared residential property as an investment, as you buy a second and a third property, you're, you're becoming more and more and more negatively geared, spiraling inwards until the bank says, I'm sorry, we're not lending you any more money. You don't have the cash flow to sustain that. Uh, whereas commercial property, much more scalable. Every time you add a commercial property to your portfolio, you're, you're typically buying them at a, these days, a, a six and a half, seven percent return. It's scalable. Every time you go to the bank and, and borrow more money, you're increasing your cash flow each year and you're becoming more and more favoured to the bank to continue to lend you more money. And look, the reason for that, as I mentioned, is that commercial property is valued on a mathematical formula that provides the investor a positively geared return. I am buying a lot of my properties still around Gold Coast, Brisbane, and the Sunshine Coast because I'm able to get returns of around seven uh, to seven and a half percent. 
And I think we'll get better returns, Andrew, as a, off the back of this coronavirus. Those returns, the capitalisation rates in Victoria, um, in Melbourne, are a lot lower. They're typically four and a half, five percent. So it's a lot more expensive there. And Sydney is typically tracking like Melbourne. It's it's four and a half to five and a half percent capitalising properties here in Sydney. But that may change uh, as a result of what's happening with the virus. And look, the final point there is that it's very di- it's difficult to evict residential tenants. The courts don't want to see residential tenants, including children, evicted onto the street. So there's a process that landlords must follow. Whereas with a commercial property, I think it's acknowledged that the tenant is renting it for the purposes of making a profit. They don't live in the property. And therefore, if they don't pay rent, in many cases, you can give them 14 days to remedy any rental arrears um, and then move to evict. If, if they haven't paid. So I, I have personally found the process easier in a commercial property to manage a tenant default than I have in a residential property. Yeah, plus you have bank guarantees and other things that are written into the contract to protect the actual owner as well. Correct. And, you know, like the typically the, the residential tenant doesn't have the asset backing that typically the commercial tenant who's an entrepreneur running their own business, they will typically own their own home and they will be a personal guarantor on the commercial lease. So you have much better security than you do with a residential tenant that potentially doesn't own their own home um, and that's why they're renting. So there's those, I guess, commercial factors of why I believe commercial retail shops is a superior asset uh, to a residential property. Okay, so just circling back to the the original question, when you are investing in a retail asset, what due diligence should you be doing on the tenant, as in the business that's operating out of that asset? Sure. So again, the the due diligence I mentioned, you're looking for an experienced operator. So I would go and interview the tenant, and you're looking to ask the tenant. And in the book, I've got I've got uh, two pages of questions dedicated of the types of questions you should be asking the tenant. Does the shop leak? Has the landlord addressed and fixed any issues that you've raised with him? How long have you been in business? Um, how many clients do you have? Uh, would you be prepared to, you know, to tell me, is the business profitable? Would you share your tax returns? Now, you are sometimes encroaching on some of the tenant's privacy. There'll be, a, a, you know, many tenants will say, I'm not wanting to share just how successful my business is with the landlord in fear that he might put his rent up. Um, So you've got to understand that you'd be working against the the tenant's odds on on those questions. But but certainly visiting the store during their their busy times, just standing out the front watching if it's a cafe, having a coffee there and just seeing how busy they are on a Saturday morning, a weekday morning, you know, watching the people come and go uh, to get an idea, is it a vibrant, dynamic business? Um, again, getting onto Google Earth, making sure that it is, you know, in the middle of a densely populated area. Uh, you, you've got to make sure that there's a lot of parking around. Forted, I, I've always found Fortitude Valley in Brisbane problematic um, as there's, you know, limited parking, very difficult for customers to stop and run in and buy something. So you, you're looking at just practical things like, is there plenty of parking? The other thing you, you could have your solicitors ask, is there any rental arrears? Um, and would the current seller provide you with a copy of the invoices and rental statements? 
Um, there's a whole lot of articles on my website about other pieces of due diligence. Uh, make sure that it's not the property's not in a flood zone. There's links to the website on the on my website called there's an article called Wet Feet, and mm-hmm. there are links there are links to flood maps, council flood maps that you can type in the address of the property and it'll come up and let you know whether the property's in in a designated council flood zone. Um, very important that you don't buy a property only to find out later on that it floods. Um, other due diligence, like has the tenant got a good rental payment history? Will the seller provide you their bank statements showing the payment history of the tenant? And you can ask that to, that to go back for 12 months to see that the tenant is consistently paying the rent. Um, and there's another article there just to make sure it's called Alarming Omissions. And this is about doing the proper due diligence on the outgoings of the building. A lot of real estate agents out there will advertise properties and say, you know, here are the outgoings, the rates, the water rates, council rates, insurance, uh, and and that's it. And they get to arrive at a net figure and they want you to, you know, basically value the property off that net rent. Yeah. But what they've actually left out is, you know, why is there is is there no charges in there? for waste removal, for, uh, you know, real estate management and administration, for annual fire safety audits, you know. So that article goes through all of the outgoings that would typically occur so that anyone buying a property can just make sure that the real estate agent has declared all of those outgoings. There's another article there that on GST to make sure as well that the net rent that's quoted is exclusive of GST. Um, mm-hmm. That's another that's another common property problem where people have bought buildings and ended up paying too much because you know they didn't take the GST out um, and an agent advertised that property with the GST in it. So you know we need to be very careful. So there's a you know and there's a lot of I guess great information on the website uh, that will prevent people from making those types of errors. Uh, for those that are interested in having a buyer's agent help them with that first investment or property purchase. Uh, that's the services that I, that the Engines of Wealth team now provide. We are, in actual fact, offering buyer's agent services, and we have purchased around 20 properties in the last six months okay. for, our, for our clients that we, we think are, are excellent investment options. So ideally, how long should the tenant have been operating out of that location for you to feel comfortable to invest in that property? Again, it depends on the location. If it's a cafe opposite Bondi Beach, it's going to have a brilliant dynamic there. Um, and I'm like to see anywhere from three to five years of trading history. And, and I'm also looking for a tenant that sees that shop as their future. Mm. And I love it when I walk into a hairdressing salon and I interview the hairdresser and she tells me, you know, oh, this is my business. This is my salon. Uh, you know, I'm only 30. I'll be retiring here. Fantastic. So I've got that, you know, that longevity where the tenant sees that they have a long history and they're going to spend their career. This is their business. They've been building it up. And they see those shops as their nest egg, as their retirement. You know, they're building up the goodwill of their business so that when they do retire, they'll sell that mm-hmm. business for the goodwill and they'll they'll put... a pocket of money in their retirement fund. So I look for those types of things, but typically three to five years trading experience okay. is, is ideal. And how many years would you feel comfortable that are left on the lease? 
It's a good question. Um, I, I typically would like at least as a minimum two years. Yep. I do come across a lot of investments that are only uh, got a year to go on their lease, and they, they may have a five-year option but that or a three-year option, but that really doesn't mean much to me because they don't have to renew it. And in those situations, I will go and talk to the tenant, and I typically will, will forego something to receive something. So I will offer the tenant, uh, if you are prepared to exercise your, your three-year option now, I won't apply the annual 3% increase or I won't market or renew your rent. I'll just renew your rent uh, as is what you're paying today as a reward for exercising that option now if I become the owner. Um, and you can even have that in writing uh, called an agreement to lease so that when you do buy and become the owner, that, up, that option has been is automatically exercised. So your lawyer can, can put that in place. So you have the confidence of buying it knowing the tenant has exercised that option already. And if the tenant doesn't want to exercise the option, then that sends a signal as well that potentially they don't want to stay. I'm also very cautious with owner-occupiers that are selling their shops because if they really had a you know a long-term plan to stay in the business and stay in that location, you've got to ask, why, why are you selling the business then? You know, you've got to be careful that they haven't elevated the rent, knowing that they're going to get, give themselves an out and they're just elevating the rent to get more money for the, to the value of their shop. So it has to be market rent. I think that's a really good little uh, negotiation tactic there. Are there. Is there anything else that you would put into the lease or the, sorry, the contract to give yourself some extra protection? Sure. So this comes down to the guarantors that are in place in the lease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if the lease is in the name of, a, of company ABC Proprietary Limited, then the owner of that company can easily deplete the company of, of assets and basically walk out on the lease and you're left to, to try and sue for rental arrears, a company that isn't worth a stamp and has no money in it. So I typically don't believe a, a lease is of, of high value unless there's a personal guarantor on that lease. And that personal guarantor is a person. And then that individual actually owns real property, real estate. And your solicitor or lawyer can run a quick search to find what real estate is owned by that individual. I have even simply asked tenants that are personal guarantors, do you own a a property? Could you send me a copy of your rates notice? just so that I can see their name is on the rate notice and they own that property. And that gives me a lot of confidence um, that if they default, then they're going to want to make an arrangement to pay back any rental arrears so that I don't start legal action and repossess their house. So that gives you, you know, a very good security. Now, where an operator comes to you and he's running a good business, but he doesn't own a property, uh, then typically I will ask for, for more bond. I might ask for six months bond instead of the standard two months bond. Okay, we'll wrap it up there, Phil. Today's been a great chat. Where can the listeners go to find out more about your book? So if you can go to my website, which is all one word, engines with an S, enginesofwealth.com, and you can read all of the articles that are up on the website that I've written regarding managing and managing tenants, managing properties, uh, there's a whole range of articles there that, you know, are essential. 
articles on GST, insurance, public liability uh, that are required if, if you're considering a commercial investment. You can order a copy there of the book if you wanted to pick a copy up immediately. Then uh, Dimmick's uh, Booktopia are all selling copies of the book in store now. Fantastic. And would you buy a Dimmick's? Yes, absolutely. They're supporting my book, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Today's guest has been Philip King. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Andrew. Chris Lang, founder of the Property Edge Australia and seven-time best-selling author, returns once again today. How are you, Chris? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent, mate. Chris, with the recent outbreak of the coronavirus in these kind of times, how do you recession-proof your property? How would you actually do that right now? I'm not necessarily convinced we're going to have a recession. Of course, that depends on how long the lockdown occurs with the coronavirus. But as I think I said in an earlier session, that the demand is deferred, not it doesn't disappear. Look, over the past 10 years, most investors seem to have preferred Sydney and Melbourne markets to other capital cities. And there, there are good reasons for that. And I think this preference is likely to continue for investors who are seeking predictable returns going forward. You see, Melbourne and Sydney no longer reach the heady heights of Brisbane and Perth during a development surge, but nor do they plumb the depths of despair either. And this is something that I'm, I'm actually going to provide to my um, mentor group in the next quarterly webinar. But this position was evidenced by the disparity in office vacancies in March 2016, which is some years after the global financial crisis. And, you know, you had Brisbane and Perth up around 20, 22%. I think Perth might have even got to 24% vacancy. And a bit like the retail, your normal balanced market is 6 to 8% vacancy rate for offices. And I'm talking CBD offices because there has to be enough space available for tenants to legitimately expand and contract. So if, if it's eight years after the global financial crisis and they're up at that level, whereas Melbourne and Sydney were hovering around the 6 to 8%, so they were still in balance. And there was a during the global financial crisis, there was a small dip for the Melbourne and Sydney markets. You probably more or less saw them moving sideways for a period rather than suffering a total collapse, which happened in Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide. And while the coronavirus is clearly having some impact on our economy, my expectation would be that it, it will probably be short lived because it's, as I said, the demand will just be stifled, but afterwards play catch up. And yep. so barring any other major external event, any correction within the two main commercial markets, I'm talking Melbourne and Sydney, should be relatively modest. But nonetheless, the question has been posed that, you know, how do you prepare yourself for a potential market correction? Now, obviously, there will be some types of property which tend to cope better than others in a downturn. And I think from what you're aware of my view, retail property is generally going to be the worst placed. The first aspect you need to consider before we get into the types of properties is the characteristics that 
property investors need to observe when they're purchasing commercial property over the next few years. A good location, obvious. A modern design and functionality for the building. They need modest borrowings and ideally what's called non-recourse finance, where the, the property is a sole security and not offering personal guarantees. And also a property that requires minimal capital input. In other words, your property should be one commanding a strong tenant demand, that's in case it were to become vacant, and also one not requiring you to dip into your pocket to meet any major expenditure. Okay. Now, ideally, you will already have a five or 10 year lease in place with, to a solid tenant, and that should allow you to straddle any downturn. And by yep. doing so, you're placing yourself in a comfortable position to emerge unaffected on the other side when the market starts to improve again. If you do have a retail asset, would you suggest that now would be a good time to sell to kind of pull off the band-aid before it gets any worse? Well, I would say you're probably better to just get the coronavirus over and the impact of that because, as I said, the demand will suddenly return because, there, look, there are still people with plenty of money. They're just nervous. Yep. So if you're effectively first or second cab off the rank once the market returns to normality, that would be a good time to sell. I wouldn't be putting it on the market in the next month or so. Okay. What sectors do you think are better in, in times of a recession or in times of a downturn or correction? It's not not so much sectors, but the, the types of properties. The first one I'd say would be suburban offices within a growth corridor. Okay. Um, warehousing and logistics facilities. And if you're lucky enough to get them, data centres. Okay, okay. From recent experience, the suburban office market, whether it's a strata title suite or a standalone office, should continue to benefit from jobs being added to the professional, the business and financial sectors. Plus, you would have noticed a growing need for people wanting to work closer to where they live due to the current excessive commuting times. As such, the CBD or inner city leases, when they fall due, more and more businesses seem to be looking to relocate closer to established employment hubs. And another thing you might consider is having a healthcare business as your office tenant, because that would be a real bonus. Yeah. Now, also, the demographic in this case is the large number of baby boomers, all of which uh, have a growing need for medical attention going forward. How do you feel about single-use properties like motels or caravan parks or like accommodation sector? Well, I mean, the accommodation sector has been hit from pillar to post, firstly with the, the fires and now when we're trying to promote them go down there, we're told people can't congregate together because of the coronavirus. So I think they're going to take a while to, to recover. You know, okay. I mean, I would be looking as I, the second choice I, I mentioned was industrial property, which has enjoyed considerable momentum over the recent years as developers and owners have responded to the heightened demand resulting from the surge in online shopping. So while... Bricks and mortar retailing is certainly suffering. It would appear that 
online demand is shaping up to be fairly recession resistant. Yeah, okay. And the last one was the data centres, because that's being driven by the Internet of Things and a growing need for cloud computing. In other words, the increasing requirement to store data and information somewhere other than on your office or home computer. And is the data centre, what kind of like facility is that? Is that like a, it would be an industrial facility, <laughs> wouldn't it? No, very much an office. Oh, it's um, still an office. Yeah, well, it is, it, and they're special. They have special air conditioning requirements because you've got to keep the computers cool. You know, got backup generator facilities and and what have you. But they're they're a very highly sophisticated office. And yes, they are uh, to a degree a specialist use. But it also provides you with enormous depreciation benefits for all the additional equipment involved. Plus. Your tenants are basically there long term. They're not about to move out. You don't set up a data centre and then move out. Yeah. So I guess in summary, you need to combine the four underlying investment characteristics that I outlined with the three preferred types of property, and then you should be in a good position to to cope well from any downturn in the market if and when that might occur. Very, very good advice. Now, Chris, your keynote address, nine-step formula, it's, it's flying off the shelves for $1. Now, do you think we could possibly do that again this week? Well, you're twisting my arm, but, um, yeah, look, I'll be more than happy to do that. It's obviously been well-received, and um, I'm only happy to help out. Excellent, excellent. All right, so all you need to do, once again, is click on the link in the show notes and enter 66 off in the coupon code, and then it'll be right there for you. Chris Lang has been my guest today. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the show. If you own a commercial property and you'd like to share your journey or you have a market that you'd like me to review, please get in contact with me via Facebook. A huge thank you goes out to all my guests. They make the show possible. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of my boy Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off.